This morning's scripture is from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, from the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put, in, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Amen. This fall, we've been working our way through Philippians, and we are almost at the end. It's been a a great journey. At least I can testify to that as the preacher. Uh, It's been very interesting uh, for me personally to to explore Philippians, uh, especially in a a way that's personally meaningful. The fact that uh, just a few months ago, I was able to travel to Philippi, uh, to those ancient ruins, and it's been meaningful to be a part of not only preaching the sermon series, but we just wrapped up a uh, Sunday morning class on uh, on looking at Philippians and some some deeper issues in Philippians. And we know that there's a no- there are a number of your small groups who have been uh, studying Philippians as well. Philippians is is just one of those books of the Bible that ends up on people's top list. Um, whether it's one, two, three, four, or five, it's, it's probably in the top five of most people's list. Here, today, we get to the reason why it's probably on people's top list, is that within this scripture passage that we just read are more than one of the church's favorite Bible verses. And those verses that, that, that they've committed to memory, some of us from our childhood, Uh, About a year and a half ago, in anticipation of our summer preaching series that was called The Greatest Hits, we conducted a survey of this congregation. What are 
what are our favorite Bible verses? And what came in first place? Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. And so we preached a sermon. We counted down from 10 to 1. And so we zeroed in on that, uh, that number one scripture, which was the scripture of don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, making our request known to God and the God of peace will be with us. These verses focus on prayer. Turns out we actually preached on this passage earlier this summer in our sermon series on prayer. So those verses we've preached twice within the last 18 months. They came in first on a survey. So those are important verses. Where this sermon is going to go is, is really talking about the context within Philippians. And so we're going to assume some of the lessons that we've learned in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 4. But we're going to appreciate how it functions within this letter that we've been studying. And when you look at the text today, the first nine verses of chapter 4, you see how this text is in its context is focused on one particular thing that actually has been a theme of the entire letter. And that is joy. The word joy or rejoice, two different forms of the same Greek word, appears in all four chapters of Philippians. Eleven times in all. In chapter one, Paul says he always prays with joy. He says... He's in this for your progress and joy in the faith. He encourages the Philippians to make my joy complete by being like-minded as one. Uh, he says, welcome one of his co-workers with great joy. He says, because of this, even in his sufferings, he rejoices. And yet, yes, he will continue to rejoice. In the second chapter, he says, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you should be glad and rejoice with me. And then in the previous chapter, chapter 3, he says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord! Exclamation point. So much joy almost makes you forget that the person writing this letter was in chains in prison. And he was writing to people who faced significant challenges day in and day out. Where's the joy in that? They found their joy in their connection with one another. We've been talking about teammates in Philippians, and what we find out in chapter 4 that we've been assuming all along is that, is that we are meant in the body of Christ to find joy in one another. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. 
the first verse of chapter 4 is overflowing with terms of endearment. Affectionate words used by friends and loved ones to describe how, how much they mean to you. We often think of terms of endearment to be like uh, uh, spouses would say this to one another or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You'd, you'd maybe get that name that you call your spouse. And for, for some spouses over the years, they might even forget each other's real name because their name is Honey or Dear or Sweetie. I looked up online terms of endearment, and it's really interesting the different languages and, and what words are used for this. So in the UK, one of the more common words to, to refer to someone who is dear to you, a term of endearment, is duck. And that made me curious about what other animals are used in terms of endearment. In Australia, believe it or not, it's possum. I mean, if, if you're in Australia and someone smiles at you and calls you their possum, those aren't fighting words, okay? <laughs> you might just want to go in for the hug. Now, in others uh, throughout Europe, different languages, uh, in some countries it's mouse. That's really cute. Bunny or kitten, right? Those are just adorable animals that, that you can refer to another person as, as a term of endearment. Most interesting to me on the list was the French, mon chou, mon chou, which if you translate the phrase, and I did this online in Google Translate, the phrase mon chou means my darling in English. But if you just translate the word chou, C-H-O-U, it means cabbage. My cabbage. Seriously? You, you use my little cabbage? And how many years have you been married? 46 years of, of my little cabbage. Ladies and gentlemen, let's a big round of applause for all that. <clears throat> Terms of endearment are really important, but you also tell a lot from them. You know, um, these are words that the more you use them, the more, it's, it's, the more it does show that, that your thoughts are in a positive way toward another person. Um, without terms of endearment of some type, it might lead to someone wondering whether they indeed are dear to you. But look at the Apostle Paul here. My brothers and sisters, you whom I love, and then ends with dear friends. Actually, that's twice. It's actually the same phrase in Greek. Agapatoi. Agape, it's really my beloved. Some transla- English translations call, it has Paul saying, my beloved. And that's, a, I think, a better word-for-word translation than dear friends, even. It's, it's beloved. He's saying, I love you twice in the same verse. And then he says, karamu, my joy. They 
are his joy. There's a direct connection in verse 3 between the joy that Paul feels toward his friends in Philippi and the fact that they are on the same team working together as one toward the same purpose of the gospel. In verse 3, he says, yes, my, my recommendation here is as I read this verse, pay attention to the alliteration. Every time you hear a hard C, think about what that word means to you. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, Yodian and Syntyche, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers. Last week, we recognized that, that co-workers in Greek is synergos, which if you literally translated that into English, transliterated, um, it would be synergist, a practitioner of synergy with one another. That's what a co-worker is, working together. That's been a theme of the entire walk through Philippians. So much of what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi is about their togetherness. In verse, chapter 1, verse 27, Paul introduced this word, uh, those who, who contend together for a common goal. That word was synathleo. It's like athlete. You're on the same team working together, putting in the effort, encouraging one another toward the same goal. That's what it means to be in Christ. And also, that is the source of joy in the Christian faith. In the great motivational speeches, the power resides in the emphasis on the collective identity of the group. The cooperative dimension that builds everyone's sense of belonging. Belonging to the team, yes, but also belonging to one another. Every significant motivational speech to a team or group at some point speaks to the people in that group and reminds them that the relationship they have with the people at their sides is special. In Shakespeare's Henry V, Henry V, St. Crispin's Day speech is, has become very popular ever since he wrote that play. It's the speech right before the climactic battle. It's the source of a popular Team-related phrase, although many are unaware that this phrase has its origin in this speech in Shakespeare. It is expertly presented in Kenneth Branagh's acclaimed film version. From the point of view of Henry up above the troops, the camera looks down upon the faces of this ragtag army, each one looking up in admiration at their leader their friend. Then the camera cuts to a close-up on Henry's face as he brings them together with genuine affection by saying these words. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. In his book, The Boys in the Boat, Daniel James Brown makes an astute observation that 
that we can think of in relation to crew rowing. You know, when we talk about teams, what is it about rowing crew that, that, that maybe connects us to the team dynamic more than other sports? One aspect is this, like I said, I think it's an astute observation. In crew, there are no stars. Now, I know if you rode crew in college, you probably have the stars that you look up to. But, I mean, I mean during the years of the boys in the boat, right, the 1930s, the, the largest crowds at any sporting event were at crew races. But it wasn't about the person who was the greatest crew rower. It was about the teams. Now, this was all at a time when you know who the greatest baseball player was during the 30s. Who was that? Babe Ruth. That's right. Babe Ruth. Is there a Babe Ruth of rowing? There wasn't a Babe Ruth of rowing because it was about the teams. Simon Sinek is an inspirational speaker on business leadership. He's a best-selling author and has become famous through his TED Talks. He often shares stories of high-performing teams to, to motivate these business teams toward success and productivity. But he often shares with them information that comes across as counterintuitive. Here's one of those instances. He shares with them that high-performing teams like the Navy SEALs accomplish great things one act of service at a time. It's not the strongest or the smartest who end up on these teams. It's those who are willing to be there for one another. Who makes it through the selection to be a Navy SEAL? Not the star athlete. Not the preening leader who has to get everyone's respect. Not the the tough guy who needs to prove how strong he is or she is. Some who make it through are actually not very athletically impressive. Some of them are very honest about being fearful in stressful situations. But what makes the difference, Cynic says, is this. I'm quoting here. When they are emotionally and physically exhausted, some way, somehow, they are able to dig deep inside themselves to find the energy to help the person next to them. Service, not strength or intelligence, is the deciding factor of a high-performance team. And that is true of the church. Doesn't it change how we look at at the work we do with one another, even through the church? If we're reminded that the deciding factor is how my relationship is with this person, and how my relationship is with this person, and that that makes the difference, it changes and challenges our mindset which, in fact, is what Paul is doing in Philippians all along, and especially in this passage. In 
verse 4, Paul says this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice, exclamation point. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. This is actually one of the more famous repetitions in all of Scripture. I mean, Paul isn't trying to hide the fact that he's repeating it. He says, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Why the repeat? Some of you remember this, I'm sure. Whenever I read this verse, I think of a song. Do you remember the rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice? Clap, clap. Yeah. (laughs) To rejoice, excuse me, is to feel and express joy. To rejoice is to embrace joy. It's an action that you perform in relation to joy. So it's not just this passive virtue, but to rejoice is an action. You can show people that you're rejoicing. You can express your rejoicing. And in this text, we find that Paul is encouraging the Philippians to rejoice In the Lord. And in fact, this phrase has been repeated throughout Philippians as well. In the Lord. You see, this is a reminder that our connection to one another in the body of Christ is that deep, profound connection with one another because we are connected in the Lord. You know how much God loves you and me? It's amazing. Our, our goal as a church really is, and, and we're going to actually learn a little bit more about this on Saturday with a new mission statement that we're, we're unveiling, that the session is unveiling, but it really has to do with, with helping to create an environment where we can just understand and be reminded over and over again how much God loves us. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son That same love is offered to everyone around us. And that gives each person a dignity. And that makes a special relationship between us because we are Christ's beloved. We have that in common, you and me, us one to another, to anyone who walks in the door of our church to anyone we encounter as we go about our lives. And we embrace joy by returning to that core connection, that core love with the Lord over and over again. It bears repeating because it needs repeating. Because our minds tend to slip off of that fact, that very basic fact, into our worries and our anxieties. And the Apostle Paul knows this because he knows it personally. And I can preach it with authenticity because it happens to me every day. And a lot of times you see it happen. And in your graciousness, you don't always, you know, kind of say, hey, Kurt, you're slipping into anxiety right now. But in fact, I am in those moments because we do. And so it bears repeating. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all. The Lord is near. There's a prayer rejoicing connection here. This is that great verse, that verse that is the favorite of this congregation about prayer and the peace that comes through prayer. It's the secret of joy. Earlier in our series, I mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic book, Life Together. And it's presented in two parts. The first part is called The Day with Others. In the church, we are the church by being one with each other, by engaging with one another, by worshiping together, by working together. The relationships with one another, appreciating one another, finding our joy in one another, feeling terms of endearment toward one another in the church. And yet, when he finishes his argument for that and his encouragement for that in the church, it's not over yet because the day with others is only the first half of the book. The second half of the book is the day alone. The day alone. And what he means by that is really your time with God. So it's not alone, you, solitary. It's more you recognizing that the Lord is near and going to the Lord with your prayers, sharing your anxieties with the Lord and receiving the peace that passes all understanding so that you then will be able to Share the love of Christ that has been poured out into you with others in the day together. It's this rhythm in the Christian life. Our time together, but also our time with God. Coming up in November, we're going to do our third spiritual practice month with practicingtheway.org. And the feature of this particular spiritual practice is solitude. Solitude, the the practice or the spiritual discipline of of finding time to be with God, to set aside distractions. Because this, it's in that day alone that our minds are transformed, that our anxieties are calmed by the peace that God gives. It's not a mistake or just... A random occurrence that Paul uses the term that our hearts and minds are guarded by God's peace. It's the same word that's used to describe the guards that are keeping watch over Paul 24 7. You could imagine Paul looking at those guards saying, Wow, I wish I didn't have these guards here all the time. But that persistence of presence is the promise of peace. That that peace will be there 24-7, no matter what, relentlessly as we bring our anxieties to the Lord in prayer. And so I'm going to conclude the sermon today by, by focusing on a phrase, peace of mind. Peace of mind. What we think matters.
in our scripture. Verse 2, where Paul pleaded with Euodia and Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Some of you recall that phrase, being of the same mind. Back in chapter 2, Paul said, be of the same mind. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, being one in spirit and truth. To operate in the church as one, together, cooperatively. Think about a, a crew in perfect synchronicity as they're gliding across the water. And Paul, in chapter 2, he said, he said, more so than just doing this in your own power, have the same mind of Christ who showed his power by serving others. Then Paul says, at the end of this encouragement of prayer, it says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're back on our minds. Paul has been wanting us to recognize that there's something powerful about our minds. What we think matters. And then he says this verse in, in, chapter, in chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I mentioned the, uh, the, that, that perfect picture of synchronicity of the crew. But it's not always like that. Occasionally, a rower will catch a crab. If you want to see some of the more violent wipeout fails in all of sport, go on to YouTube and, and look up rowing Catch a crab. What that means is when you get going good and fast, and all the power of all the rowers is in syncopation, and when they pull, everything's going in one direction. What happens if your oar goes into the water as if to break the water while everyone else's energy is going in the other direction? Something violent. <laughs> immediately the, the handle of the oar comes back at you and can do damage. But one thing that it can do is if your arms stay connected to it, it will toss you right out of the boat. The equivalent of catching a crab in the Christian community is when our thinking, because of the anxiety we're feeling, when our thinking causes us to get out of sync with one another. And we're no longer focused on being one in spirit and truth. We're no longer focused on our cooperation, on contending together for the cause of the gospel. We're not focused on peace of mind. We're focused on giving that person a piece of our mind. Whenever we see violent repercussions that interrupt the peace of God in the church, invariably this springs from our thoughts. That's what's at stake. 
That's why Paul is encouraging us to think on these virtuous things and to embrace the peace of mind that God offers us. Peace through prayer guards the mind from anxiety. Thinking about excellent or praiseworthy things, as, as uh, Philippians 4.8 uh, shows us, it aligns our minds with God's peace. I mean, focus your minds on those words and now become a disruptor. Become, become someone who, who is out to hurt people. You can't. It's the exact opposite of these words. Paul is engaging in a little bit of what I would call cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it's one kind of form of, of therapy that's based on, on an assumption that, that oftentimes the challenges that we face, the problems that we are facing, are based on faulty or unhelpful ways of thinking. They might be learned patterns of, of thought that we face when we're, we're experiencing a particular type of anxiety. But there's hope there because there, the hope is that, that learning new ways of thinking might actually transform our lives. Some of us have, have benefited from therapy that helps us think new thoughts, that help, helps us, you know, kind of play new tapes, not just the same old thoughts that, that lead us into anxiety, but thoughts that do allow us to allow God's peace to take over and take control. In conclusion, in this journey through Philippians, we have been discovering about joy. And we're reminded by Paul in his term of endearment that we find joy in each other. Those you're in the trenches with, those with whom you are in the same boat in the church, working together, rowing together toward the goal, seeking synchronicity. In order to do this, we're reminded to embrace joy repeatedly, to enact joy as a choice, and it bears reminding Reminding that we need to draw that joy from the Lord. And finally, we're reminded that the powerful promise of God about prayer is peace of mind. It transforms our lives and it transforms our relationships with one another. Because what we think matters. Embrace joy. Make that term of endearment your aim as you follow the lead of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who we share life together with, one with another. Amen.